This is the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Each month, we explore love and sex by asking a single question. To find the answers, we speak with experts and listeners like you. This episode contains explicit material. Please proceed with caution. I'm Noah Michelson. And I'm Karina Kolodny. This week's question is, can a fetish group start and sustain its very own nation? Bright and early one Saturday morning in June 2000, around 25 men scuttled down a castle stairway into a long corridor of a stable. Each buck naked save for a ragged pair of shoes, neck collar, and a set of clanking leg irons, they tripped and stumbled as a line of imperious, gorgeous young women clad in leather fetish gear caned them with a gauntlet of long rods. Then, quick on their heels, about 35 new women, likewise clad in domination get-ups, marched out after the men carrying with them rods, riding crops, and dozens of eggs. As the shackled men scrambled through muddy ponds, trying and failing to climb little hillocks, the women lit out after them, hurling eggs left and right. Every time a cold, hard shell smacked into the soft flesh of one of the running men, he stopped, turned, and crawled back to the woman who'd pegged him, sometimes licking or kissing her boots before being dragged back to a holding pen. Once inside, the detained men obediently let the woman whip and smack them, and with each blow, the struck men breathlessly and profusely thanked his cajoling, laughing striker. Well, I'm Mark Hay. I'm a freelance writer living in Brooklyn. which really means that I just sit around my room in my underwear for many days of a week, trolling the internet for interesting content and seeing who will pay me to say something about it, which is pretty much the greatest life I ever could have hoped for. I'm living the dream. Mark's article in Good Magazine inspired this episode. It's titled, Welcome to the Other World, The Rise and Fall of a Kinky Real-Life Femdom Nation. Work, work, and more work. 24 hours a day, if possible. That's the life of a male creature in the other world kingdom. Not every slave is lucky enough to accompany a goddess as her servant. More often, it's the case that male creatures are used for hard labor during construction or landscaping in the area, for cleaning, cutting wood, cooking, and other essential activities. Without regard as to whether they like it or not, they are under the constant supervision of ladies, demanding every ounce of energy from them. Most of them work with joy and try their best to work for the comfort of women. That nation, which is technically a micronation, was the Otherworld Kingdom, or OWK for short. A micronation is an entity that claims to be an independent nation or state, but is not officially recognized by world governments or major international organizations. OWK was founded in 1996 in the Czech Republic, outside of the city of Brno. It was a matriarchy with its own passports, currency, and rules. And there were many rules. The kingdom was spread across eight acres of land in an otherwise desolate area. It was ruled by the elusive Queen Patricia, who, along with her fellow dominatrixes, controlled a small legion of voluntarily submissive men, and a few women. OWK was built around this concept of femdom, a form of BDSM where women are dominant. Femdom can range from sensual things, such as massaging or serving the dominant, to more extreme and perhaps even brutal things, 
like being pelted with eggs, being whipped, or even being used as a human toilet. In this practice, men and women are typically referred to as subs, but the OWK gave the slave title to anyone who was at the beck and call the dominatrixes. The entire question of safe words was kind of moot here because by coming to the OWK, you were agreeing to a set of laws that they had outlined. So by entering the OWK, you were basically saying, I sign away all of my safe words as a man as long as I have agreed to be here. I mean, you could come for set periods of time. You definitely weren't there against your will any longer. There were cases where they evacuated people for medical emergencies or because of illness. Um, There was one pretty good slave's account of a guy who got appendicitis and they evacuated him to a hospital in the UK pretty immediately. So you could get out, yeah. This wasn't something where you you were trapped, but the idea that you'd have a safe word to get out, um, not so much. And people paid a lot of money to enter the Otherworld Kingdom gates. We had the chance to speak with one of the couples who ventured inside. Okay, my name is Lady Femina. I've been a dominatrix uh, since I was 24 years old, and now I'm 62, so you can do the math. How did you meet Tony? Oh, now this is a great question. Um, I was actually a teacher in northern New Jersey. Um, I had brought my first brand new car when I was just out of college. It broke down. He fixed my tire, and thank God he was mechanically challenged because in the hour and a half that he tried to fix my car, we fell in love, and we've been together ever since. I love that. That's amazing. back to my apartment in Jersey City. Oh, we don't. Do we really need to talk about that? (laughs) Lady Femina and her husband, Tony, don't practice harsh femdom, but Tony does like to wait on and please his wife. Uh, We were always looking for something a little bit sexual or sensual during the time that we were going to be in another place in the world, and we found OWK, and we thought, well, let's just give it a try. So we were going to be in Prague, And uh, originally, it had been told to us during magazines that it was in Germany, but it wasn't, or in Holland. So uh, we planned to go to Prague. We decided that we would, you know, take a chance and go down there for a few days, not really expecting that it was going to be what we expected. But when we got there, it was the most remarkable place. I have to say that the women were beautiful. The environment was gorgeous. Um, It was a little maybe outside the norm for what we were looking for, but uh, it was a great erotic experience. Yeah, we kind of thought at first it was just fantasy. We had been in Prague in the Czech Republic when it was Czechoslovakia, when it was communist, and it was a good excuse to go back. And uh, the town that it was located in was about 100 kilometers east of uh, east of Prague. So we said, I think when we get out there, we're going to go up to the castle and there's going to, instead of this beautiful lady dominatrix greeting us, there's going to be a farmer with a pitchfork, and we're going to say, is this OWK? And he's going to say, OWK, what you talk? You know, we didn't, expect, we didn't expect it to be real, but we got there, it was all legitimate. Everything was legitimate. I have to say that a lot of the, the, the facility was immaculate. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. But a lot of the events were a little silly. Um... Like caterpillar races with... Which you won. Well, well, I did win them. You won the very first human caterpillar race I I did. It doesn't make it any less silly. (laughs) Um, But it was these guys were in like these latex suits. There was a caterpillar race. There were um, 
human um, toilet pods. I mean, there was all sorts of stuff going on. Most of the dominatrices that were there were there with their own personal slaves or husbands or boyfriends. And then there were a lot of um, men that came there and paid um, for accommodation to be resident slaves. Uh, it was good fun. The dominatrixes were wonderful. They were open. They weren't bitchy like you might expect. They were just lovely, open, laughing women, and we had a wonderful time. Lady Femina and Tony made two trips to the other world kingdom. The first trip was to experience the kingdom itself, including the crowning of the queen. The second trip was more for business than pleasure. They were trying to partner with Queen Patricia on a tourism venture, but they had a difficult time due to her vague business dealings and her desire to keep everything she did private. Yeah, well, you got to realize, you know, 19, <clears throat> 1938, Czechoslovakia was occupied by the Nazis. <laughs> end of the war they were not liberated by the West, they were liberated by the Soviet Union. And at the end of the Cold War and the Velvet Revolution, which they had in Czechoslovakia and in Czechoslovakia and, and they split into two nations, Slovakia and the Czech Republic, they tried to find the original owners of property such as the castle that OWK was in. And in many cases that was taken by yeah, it was the taken by the communists or the Nazis or both. And in many cases, the people were dead. They couldn't find the families or whatever. So in many cases, they were trying to sell property. And this is what I believe what happened. And there was some money behind her. We're not sure where it came from. She bought the castle. Her eventual goal, she told us, there was a small village around it. was, say, I don't know what the population was. Maybe let's just say about 250 people, something like that. And she was trying to not only have the femdom society within the castle walls but also for the entire town and she offered she wanted us to buy property in the town it could have been really uh, incredible as a male submissive i find the whole thing very very uh, attractive very exciting to have an actual female dominated society but that's the rules and uh, it could have been great but at the time it, again it was a period of transition she still had these simple Czech farmers living in this town, you know, and they're watching all these crazy things going on. I guess they got glimpses of it, and they heard something that was going on within the castle walls. And meanwhile, they're living a simple, a simple life there, um, uh, trying to make the transition from communism to capitalism. So it was a very difficult time, but it was just a simple little town. With, it was a attractive enough place and we actually toyed with the idea we could have gotten a home there very cheaply and i'm just glad we didn't but uh, we enjoyed the czech republic and the czech people one of the most interesting things about the other world kingdom is that it was a community founded before the internet really took off which raises the question have online communities replaced the need for these types of physical communities prior to the spread of the internet and, and so much available so much available on today about femdom online there was this broad category called BDSM, that everything that fell under, everything kind of fell under that. There was femdom, there was maledom, there was very, very strict. Cuckling. Everything, people never heard of cuckling back then. What's happened is the internet has liberated people and allowed them to explore other lifestyles that they maybe never even fantasized about that's suddenly out there. And uh, for instance, I've always liked uh, Lady Femina to have lovers well-hung lovers. 
And uh, we practiced that for many years. And all of a sudden, there's this thing called cuckolding on the Internet. I said, wow, we've been doing this for years, and we never knew we were be I was being cuckolded. I mean, it wasn't just a term. And it's the same thing within femdom. There are many, many subcultures within it that, for instance, I'm not into the harshness that was at OWK. I went there as the highest level of visitor you could be. As a male, I just had to have this like, dot on my head. I had to bow to the women when they went by me. But none of the women could give me orders or anything. I was there more or less as an observer because we were there to try to arrange some business maybe. And, uh, but I, couldn't, I would never put up with the things that these guys did, nor do I fantasize about it, nor do I want it. I'm at a very soft level of, of um, male submission. I like to honor women. I like to do body worship. I like to serve them. I like to see that they're pleased sexually like that. That's probably the softest level of it. But there's this wide range, and they were appealing mostly to the most extreme elements. While researching his article on the Otherworld Kingdom, Mark got an education in kink. I'm really vanilla. I am extremely vanilla. I am not... I am about to say this on a, a podcast with a large viewership. I am not sexually exciting as a human being. <laughs> and I will never have another date again. Um... But I have always been aware of BDSM, but it's not a culture that I interact with on a very regular basis. So my knowledge of it was very limited coming into this. I tried to do my best to educate myself. I mean, talking to as many people as I could. Um, I guess I learned a lot about the fluidity of the practices. I mean, a lot of people will, and this was one criticism that I've gotten on the article since it's been released, a lot of people will shift uh, what they're into from partner to partner or experience to experience, which makes it really hard to pin down how many people of what gender are dominant and how many people of what gender are submissive because you switch from being dominant to submissive, which also made the OWK kind of hard because it was sort of this reified female dominance all the time, really, really hard dom, uh, male submissive all the time, really, really hard sub. So, yeah there's this fluidity that I had never really appreciated before. And this wide, wide range of practices that, while I'd been aware of the fact that there's range, I was never really aware of just how much range there was or how fascinating and meaningful some of the uh, encounters can be. Mark may be self-described as vanilla, but it seems like he really went out of his way to understand the nuances of BDSM and the community of the other world kingdom. No, a lot of people will use this for, um, I suppose you would say, political or therapeutic ends as well. It's not just about, ooh, pleasure and pain, you know. Sure, there's an element of that. We all like a little hair pulling sometimes. Um, it, but it's not just about that. There are a lot of people who do this because it allows them to invert gender norms or invert social norms. And there was one really um, catching account. I, I drew heavily on this... Uh, sociologist of BDSM, Danielle Lindemann, who writes about, um, no, I'm sorry, this was Ingrid Olson, who's another uh, sociologist of BDSM, who writes about one encounter uh, in which a man usually confined to a wheelchair was the dominant partner over an able-bodied uh, individual. 
So it's sort of a way for him in that context to escape and totally rewrite what is his usual social experience. And for a lot of people, that's the way it is. And you see some things that can read as troubling, like some people play with race in a way that you look at it from the outside and go, ooh, well, okay. But these are obviously very comfortable communities where everybody communicates so regularly to set up what the boundaries are, what the borders are, what's acceptable, what's not. Communication is a big part of kinky sex. Um, it should be a part of all sex, but <laughs> it's sad that we have to refer to it as part of kinky sex as opposed to part of all sex. But yeah, it's something that they do really well. One of the things that Karina and I love the most about the BDSM community is how much communication there is between the people in these kind of relationships. However, given the other world kingdom's rules and its participants, there wasn't the freedom to negotiate scenes or switch roles. One of, one of the problems was is that for most people, for most guys in this environment, they want, they want harshness, yes, but they also want some nurturing from a caring mistress, and these mistresses didn't have any of those DNA. <laughs> um, so it was very difficult between the weather issues the fact that you've got a very, very small niche right here. Um, I have to say that I think that their their charges were very high, very, high. very, very high. Can you, and, guys, can you guys tell me how much they did charge, or roughly? Charging for a lot of these guys a thousand dollars a day. I mean, that was that was pretty high. Was it that high? Yeah, it was that high. And it was or hotel maybe charges 3, too. Or three thousand for a weekend, and and these guys, I have to say, I mean, it was so harsh that a lot of the guys got ill because they were being fed like gruel. It was awful. You know, and they were living in cages in the basement with three inches of water. That's not I my mean, fantasy. We're, we're, we're Americans in Florida. You know, we like our comfort. <laughs> so um, three inches of cold water in a cage in the bottom of the basement with $1,000 does not a dominatrix make. So I think they, I think they overestimated the number of people that would be interested in that sort of a harshness. That is a lot of money to pay for a weekend away, not to mention the travel fees that come with going to such an obscure location. It's hard to figure out what the actual finances are because um, I was never able to reach uh, the actual administrators, try as I might. I had a lot of weird phone calls with very confused Czech guys. Um, you know, what? No, no porn. We don't have porn. Why are you asking about porn? Um, just barely any English, but trying to track down any phone number I could, any email I could, but they've just sort of vanished into the mist. And they're still active, but I had trouble finding them. Did manage to talk to a lot of the people who actually went there, though, and they talk about it as basically being hotel prices. So a lot of the dominatrixes actually got their subs to pay for them to go. Uh, because a lot of subs will be either in a relationship with a woman or they will be paying for the domineering services of a woman. So a lot of subs were the ones bearing the brunt of this. And yeah, it wasn't something that everybody could afford. And yeah, because of that, a lot of the people there tended to be more European than American just because it was easier for them to access. So for a lot of people, this was more an image or something where they bought the magazines or the videos that were produced on the grounds than it was something they could actually experience. And that's part of why it never could become an actual fight for kingdom or mecca for this sort of thing. 
So you've touched on it a little bit, but why do you think that the micronation failed? And do you think that it is possible for a micronation built around sexuality or kink to exist and and thrive beyond a 10 or 12 year period? Hmm. Uh, The failure part is partially just practical. Like we've said, it was not exactly in the world's most exciting place. It's like out of one of the smaller towns in the Czech Republic. It's on an old farming commune. Not a lot to do. I mean, from what I was told, even the queen of the uh, micronation, Queen Patricia, and her court would just fuck off on the weekends to Prague when nobody was there. So it kind of tells you something when you can't even keep uh, the queen there full time. Uh, And they apparently looked at other properties, but they could never find one that worked. So part of it was just, one, it's expensive. Two, it's uh, out in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. Three, it's a very specific type of femdom. And that was one of the big problems, was that the queen was pretty hardcore. Like, this level of violence and this level of pain was not what a lot of people would sign on for. And beyond that, the idea of occupying this role uh, permanently is something that only very, very, very few uh, people will want to do. Most people want to transition. We all slipstream between our different identities all the time. Uh, And that's something that you had less ability to do because as uh, one of the subs put it to me, look, it was a literal castle. They closed the gates at night. You couldn't leave. Which sounds more ominous than he meant it, but he just meant, you know, you didn't have the same ability to switch between being different parts of yourself while you were there. And it became sort of like, I start to think of it like an autocracy of hardcore kink, because the people who worked there weren't actually um, dominatrixes. Just to sell magazines at first, as far as I understand it, the queen recruited a lot of just Czech models, and she trained them to be dominatrixes. There's, there, people refer to real doms and fake doms, and real doms being the ones who find this intellectually and sexually stimulating and want to do it themselves, fake doms being the ones who put on some leather and just cane people in these uh, paid-for tableaus. And so you could call these women fake doms, people who were just trained to be hardcore. That was that. And as a result, uh, people found them less sensual or less uh, authentic. And there were real doms who came through all the time. There was legitimacy to this place. But some of the staff was just perpetuating this hardcore domination in a way that didn't appeal to everyone. So place, money, um, ideology of kink, it all just didn't add up to a sustainable community. I think what most people will find of particular interest is that there wasn't any sexual activity in the other world kingdom at all. Oh, no. Sex was not a part of this place. That was actually one of the rules was, and it was another form of domination, like you controlled the male libido. They weren't even allowed to jack off, uh, which is why uh, one dominatrix actually told me she had a great business idea to just be on the border of the kingdom, have like a little jerk off hut, charge a dollar for use or something and make yourself a millionaire after a couple of years. Um, But no, sex was uh, strictly verboten. Um, That was not something that was done. This was more about like the the domination and the sensuality. Well, not the sensuality for most people, but the intellectual or the practice side of it. It wasn't about the sexual side of it as much. But people were obviously turned on by this. Um, 
they were really into it. So they actually posted guards outside of the guys' cells to make sure that they didn't please themselves. But what about pleasing the women? This, there was no pleasing the women? I mean, other than just turning them on through these acts of submission? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they, well, they were totally allowed to please each other or themselves, which may have happened. Um, nobody really talked about that aspect. But this wasn't a place to go for sex. This was a place to go for femdom and sensuality, which are separate things. I mean, they're interconnected things, and they can tie together, and they often do in people's personal relationships. But especially when you have a guy paying to be there, there are some people in the community who, who see that as bordering on prostitution, and they, they don't like the power that it can give over to men. This idea of, I pay you, now where is my sex? There were, however, special toilets, which is a phrase that always piques my interest. And it's one of the details that ended up being omitted from Mark's article. So this is just one of those little snippets or images that sticks with you. And when I say images, I mean I found photos of this, which is, yeah, they're going to stay with me forever. <laughs> so apparently there's a particular type of sub who um, incorporates fecal matter or urine into their uh, sense of domination. It's that old trope, you know, shit on my chest or something like that. Um, what they do is they put their heads underneath specially designed porta potties. And then they wait for a woman to come in and use the facilities on their face. And the way that one Dom uh, described it to me actually was something like, I'll never forget looking down and seeing that smiling little face, and then you just shove the toilet paper in their mouth, and they're just so happy. Okay, Noah, what do you think? I think Otherworld Kingdom sounds like a really fun vacation on steroids or on poppers or party drugs. It sounds like a good place to go. I just don't know how sustainable it is. Right. It sounds like a place to visit, but as a permanent destination or a place to be a citizen of, I don't know. But you know what I do like? I like this idea of community. And I think that we can sort of take that away from this, that people who do belong to these niche communities are looking for a place to belong and they want others who are like them. And that's really hard to find, and especially when you have a fetish or, a, you know, quote unquote, a lifestyle that a lot of people don't have. You feel misunderstood in your day to day life. So the idea of a micronation where there are a lot of other people like you and you can live with them, I think that that's really appealing. Well, and especially before the internet. I think that's one of the really interesting parts of this is that the internet has changed everything. We used to just be limited by our geographical communities, the people that were actually next to us. So you'd have to go out and create something like this. But that's not a requirement anymore. No, and I think, you know, even thinking about queer people, when the internet came, all of a sudden there were you, you knew people who were gay, and maybe before that you'd never known. But just think about if you loved having eggs pelted at you, how would you find that person without the internet? How, you can't just go knocking on doors and saying, hi, I have this fetish, do you have it too? So to have this place where you knew you could go, kind of a mecca, I think that that was probably really gratifying and, and really satisfying for people. Right. But now I would take bets that there is a search term for egg pelting on Pornhub. I think you're probably right. But I also think that people like Tony and Lady Feminuck actually have proven that they can find a community offline. 
And maybe it's not in, you know, the Czech Republic and maybe it's not in a castle. Maybe it's in Tampa, Florida. But because of the Internet and because of people looking for other people like themselves, these kind of communities can exist and they can thrive. My husband and I have been in business together for 35 years. When we're talking about business, we're absolutely cruel. When we're talking about lifestyle, we have civility. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you just have to you just have to play it the way it is. Yeah. Uh, we have a 24-hour relationship here where we live in Florida. Um, some of our friends may come over on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock in the morning. They just want to hang out and have a cup of coffee, and maybe the next thing I know, um, Tony is doing some sort of a scene with somebody because he's. I provide services to women here. I yeah. provide what I call my Tony treatments. Yeah. They're sensual um, uh, massages plus. Let's well, put it that way. The, I and guess yeah, the, so. I guess the bottom line is is that you know if you overstep your boundaries or you're not in the mood, um, you just move on to whatever else that you're doing. But uh, we're very fortunate to have a lot of lot of friends. Extremely professionally competent people who choose to live in an open environment and um, you know we get together for drinks we get together for coffee we get together for breakfast and if it turns into strapping somebody to an a-frame and beating the hell out of them well I'm there Karina do you think that the other world kingdom failing was just inevitable I think it could have existed if it had started under a different premise I think because they started it as a micronation and and had sort of these lofty, maybe even like politically oriented goals, that was its downfall. I think if they had done it more realistically and said, okay, this is going to be a destination, this is going to be an adult Disneyland for people with this specific fetish where they come for a weekend or they come for a week and, and have this experience where they can suspend disbelief and and completely fall into their fantasies that might have been an alternative that would have worked and it makes me wonder too like what is a fantasy and what is just a part of someone's life and how do fetishes play a part in our life you know can a fetish actually be something that is part of our day-to-day life or is that something that isn't you know practical at all well, I guess the thing that I think is interesting is I think fetishes or, or preferences, like our sexuality and our sensuality are sort of inherent parts of who we are, and they come out in places that aren't, you know, specifically labeled as, you know, this is a sexual or sensual space. But in that same way, you know, other parts of us come out in our sexual and sensual spaces. You can't completely isolate these parts of yourself, let alone join a nation and, and build an entire world and, and life around it, at least I don't think you can or maybe should. Right. And is too much of a good thing a bad thing, I guess, is the ultimate question. Right. The Otherworld Kingdom was destined to fail from day one. As a business, it was doomed by all the dull pragmatics of money and leadership. But as a political entity and a full-time society, it never really even managed to make it off the ground, for one simple fact that it was a utopian space built around the forceful elevation of one very niche and uncompromising form of identity over all the others. Humans are humans because we are complex, full of shifting fluid identities which we switch between on a whim. We often choose to present ourselves and read the world through one or more dominant identities. I'm a Christian, or I'm kink, 
or I'm a goddamn lumberjack. But such acknowledgements, although varied in their extent, never excoriate the rest of who we are. A man may define himself as one thing above all else, but if kink is also part of his persona, then it's pretty likely that, even if he never tells a soul around him, he's still seeding his life with the scene's subversive values and modes of communication. That's it for this week's episode of the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the HuffPost Love and Sex Podcast on iTunes. Click those gold stars. If we get enough of them, HuffPost is going to fund our very own micronation, sexual-themed TBD. Special thanks to Jed Olbaum from Good Magazine for his help with this piece, to our guests Mark Hay, Tony and Lady Femina, and to our producer, Caitlin Buguki. Have an idea for a podcast? Email loveandsexpodcast at huffingtonpost.com.